Good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're just joining us, I've been away for a couple weeks, but it's good to be back. And I'm going to go ahead and put my plug in. I'm going to do everything I can to get down to San Diego. So I hope you'll join me. We can maybe take a, a bus. It can be the missions party bus. It's going to be awesome. Or we could take the train, and we'll just turn it into our party train. But it'll be good. So come. Let's do this. Um, well, let me pray for us as we open God's word. God, as we have this time together, these moments, to reflect on this most amazing and beautiful text, we ask that it wouldn't just be beautiful words on a page, but that the beauty that is therein would be really seen for what it is, and that is that you are here, Lord, that you reside in your word, that it is living and active. And so come, jump off the words of these pages, and meet us, that we might be forever changed. Amen. Well, perhaps if, if you are just joining us or you're new to this church or to Christianity, uh, welcome. I'm so glad you are here. Perhaps it's worth noting that we are in this season that Christians call Advent. It's the end of the church calendar, the end of the Christian calendar, and it's the season in which we wait for Jesus's, what the theologians call Jesus's parousia, his coming, his coming again. Jesus has one coming. It's divided really into two, uh, two parts. There was his coming as a baby in Bethlehem, and then there will be his coming again. And it's a time in which the church learns to wait and to hope and to cultivate longing for Jesus' promises. And I need to do that. We need Advent. I don't know about you, but I need Advent. Because as I face life and its difficulties and its just drab mundaneness, it's easy for me to lose sight of the promises of Jesus. To either, I'm tempted to either slack up or to give up. And some of you are as well. How do you keep going in the midst of all the difficulties and the mundaneness that we experience in this life? How do you keep going? Well, anyone knows that it's much easier to keep going in a challenging situation when you have the certain confidence that the situation is going to change. But there is a day coming when the situation is going to change. A great illustration of this, at least for me, uh, as a Southerner who grew up in, loving and watching the SEC Southeastern Conference, for those of you who don't know, a great illustration of this is uh, Patrick Patterson and the 2008-2009 Kentucky Wildcats basketball team. You see, it had been a rough couple years his freshman year, Patrick Patterson, who was a great player, he had a fracture 
in his leg, and so therefore he was unable to play the rest of the season. So that's not a great year. His sophomore year, he comes out ready to play. He does pretty well, but the team does lousy. For the first time in 18 seasons, Kentucky did not make the NCAA tournament. And that's a big deal. For the first time in 18 seasons. So he's sitting there at the end of his sophomore season, and what happens is he's going, do I really want to carry carry along with this program? Do I really want to be with Kentucky in their worst years ever? I don't think so. And so he declares for the draft. The NBA, uh, not the war or anything, right? The NCAA draft. Uh, I'm sorry, the NBA draft. So he's going to go pro. Basically, he was saying, I've given up on the season. He puts his name. I've given up on the program. I'm giving up. And who could blame him? But something changed. He ended up actually coming back another year and persevering with the team. What changed? Well, I don't think it's hard to guess what changed. I know exactly what changed as a Memphis fan, and that's this, that a few days after the season ended, uh, Kentucky announced that they had fired their coach, Billy Gillespie, and had hired my coach, John Calipari. And not only did they hire John Calipari, with John Calipari, they brought... He brought the number one recruiting class, not just of the year, but of all time. And so at that point, Patrick Patterson is sitting there saying, wait a second. John Kyle Perry's coming. And he's bringing with him the best high school players that are out there. Next season is going to be totally different. The situation is going to totally change. And so because of that, that enabled him to persevere through the end of a lousy season, to persevere with Kentucky because he knew, he knew that he had confidence that things would change. And they did. It, it's, it's true in basketball, but it's true in life. Many of us don't play, but you've got to understand that was his profession. That is his profession. Uh, that was his career. That is everything almost to this man. But we all have experiences where we're in life, and it is the confidence that things are going to change that help us persevere in the present, to stick with it. And it's especially true in the Christian life. The confidence that Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, everything will be different, that things will change. That helps us persevere through the difficulty, the drab, whatever experiences we face. And so it's this and this time that Christians cultivate longing and hope in the promise of Jesus' return. But what's it going to be like when he, when he appears? What's it going to be like when he returns? I was in the gym some months ago, and as I was uh, on the treadmill, I noticed that there was someone next to me, and they were reading a book, and the title kind of interested me. It said, Heaven is for Real. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this book, and some of you know of it. It's about uh, an experience of a little boy who uh, his supposed experience of a near-death experience who come, goes to heaven and comes back, tells his father about it, and his father writes this, this book. Now, I can't speak to the contents of that book because I haven't read it. But one thing that really interests me 
is that that book was a New York Times number one bestseller, and it was so popular that it was made into a screenplay. You can go see it in a movie. Now, what does that tell me? It says this, that in a culture where people aren't sure what their religious convictions are, they aren't sure if there's a God or not, they still are very interested in this idea of heaven. We all are. But if you want to go and know what heaven is going to be like, then the place to go for my money is to the chapters that was read earlier in John's Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. This is the longest description in the Bible of what we call heaven. John, of course, he calls it in verse 1 of chapter 21, a new heaven and a new earth. So perhaps it's better described as the future world. But this is the longest description of what things are going to be like, what it's going to be like, what the situation will be like when Jesus returns. And it isn't really a traveler's guide's description. Uh, John is not Rick Steves. And he doesn't describe things like you're reading a, um, you know, Lost World or a uh, Fodor's. He, he, it's a highly figurative and description. And if you try to read it like a traveler's guide, you will be absolutely confounded. For instance, look at verse, uh, look at chapter 21, verse 21. There, John describes the streets of the city as pure gold and at the same time like transparent glass. Now, how is something as clear as glass and yet pure gold? It's a highly figurative description. Nor does John answer all the questions that we have about the future world. The legitimate questions we have like this. Okay, it says that Jesus will be there in his bodily existence and that we will be with him as his people. He will be with us as our God, that we will have communion with him. But how are we all going to be able to relate to Jesus in his bodily existence? Which is at one place at one time. When there are so many other myriad of saints throughout the world today and throughout time, who will also want to relate to him. How does that work out? I don't know. And John doesn't answer the question, nor does he answer how all the people from all the ages who have followed Jesus, how they're all going to fit in this new world. He doesn't tell us that either. They're legitimate questions, but they're not the questions that John is, is interested in. He doesn't answer these questions But if he doesn't tell us everything, that doesn't mean that he doesn't tell us anything. These chapters are given for a reason, and the reason, I believe, is to stoke our imaginations. That what John is trying to do is to capture and captivate our imaginations, to cultivate a longing for the one who says, I am coming soon. Now, 2,000 years might not seem like soon, but don't you understand, when Jesus died and rose again, As Paul says, the time has been collapsed because there is a definite point when he will come. And therefore, in light of that, it is soon. And John says here, I think, what he's trying to do is he says, if you want to know, if you want to know what the future world will be like, then you have to do two things. First, you have to imagine a world wherein Tolkien's famous 
words, everything sad comes untrue. Look in verse 4. He says that when when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. What John is doing is he's trying to explain the future world by saying what it is not. It's what theologians call the negative way, the via negativa. What he's doing is he's saying, um, first, if you want to have a good idea what it's like, then you need to know what it's not. I mean, you know this, right? If you've never experienced vegetarian lasagna and you've never had that before and you're like trying to understand it, well, a good place to start is it's like meat lasagna with no meat. Picture the lasagna that you've experienced, and that doesn't get you all the way there, but it's a good start, right? And John says, picture the world you know, but without any tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. In other words, imagine a world, he says, without the curse. Look in verse, look in chapter 22, verse 3. He says, there were no longer will there be anything accursed. Most of what brings tears and mourning and crying and pain in this world that we experience is a result of the curse. Just imagine with me a world with no environmental upheaval. You know, there's no place you can go in the world, not one, where you are not threatened by the environment. In California, we have droughts and fires and earthquakes. Move to Florida, and you have hurricanes. In Oklahoma, there are tornadoes. Wherever you go, the environment is always threatening. Think about a world where you never have to worry. You never have to worry that your house will be destroyed based on forces beyond your control. A world without any floods or droughts or famine. A world without this. Well, he says, if you imagine that world, you're getting close to what it's like. Imagine a world without the frustrations of work. Not a world without work, but a world without the frustrations of work. Without the wasted time. Without the project uh, being having no uh, end. Without the stress of the deadline that you know that you can't meet. Without the threat of unemployment or actually experience an unemployment. Imagine a world without that. And you're getting there. Imagine a world without bodily pain. You know, all of us, um, all of us experience bodily pain. I can't tell you how many conversations, and maybe you can think yourself, that I have. And when I'm talking to another person and ask them how they're doing, and if they open up a little bit more than fine, they usually have some ailment that goes on with their body. Most people struggle with this. All of us uh, just about are born into this world with things that are wrong with us. Some of them are apparent from birth, and some of them make their way or reveal themselves later on. But, but all of us, are, our bodies are deteriorating from backaches to headaches, from chronic fatigue, asthma, arthritis, 
to the greater threats like tumor and cancer. We all experience this. Imagine a world where there is no bodily pain. Those of you who are my age and older will probably remember the opening ceremonies of the 1995 Olympics. And it was the hundred years, it was the, marked the hundred years, the centennial Olympics from when they started, not the ancient ones, but the modern ones. And they were here in America and everyone's wondering who's going to be the person who lights the torch, right? And then all of a sudden, who came out but Muhammad Ali? And the crowd erupted. But as they were erupting, you also sensed this deep sorrow. It was bittersweet. Because this champion, who had won the gold medal 35 years before, was just a shell of himself. As you saw him try to hold that torch, shaking with Parkinson's. Imagine a world without bodily pain. Imagine a world without death and all the loss that death brings. In verse 4, John says, death shall be no more. I've lived in a lot of places, and those places have been spread out. And the reality is I don't like to think about this much, but many of the people many of the people with whom I have had close relationship with, I will never see again. Never, ever, ever. And there is a sadness and a loss in that, particularly if I let myself dwell on it. And, and there are people who I wish I would have known, but death took them before my time. And... There are people who I did know, but not enough. Death took them before their time. Imagine a world with no death. A world where goodbye is always see you later. Where there's always time to explore the interesting image of God that is fascinating. In so many people. Imagine that world. And then John says you're getting close. At what it's like. There will no longer be anything accursed. The curse will be removed. But that's not it. John also says that you have to imagine a world without sin. Because the reason why there is a curse in the first place is as a result of sin. And the reason that there will be no curse is because there will be no sin. Look in 21:27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John's saying nothing dark will spoil life in heaven. No dark things and no dark people. That's what he tells us in verse 8. As for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable and for murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire. They will not be there. No dark things. 
No dark people. You know, much of what spoils life here on this earth is sin. The Avid brothers in their song January Wedding say, I hope that it down, don't sound too insane when I say there is darkness all around us. And we hear that, and part of us thinks that sounds insane, that there is darkness all around us, but can you really doubt it? I was talking with my dad just the other day, and he told me of a story how just a, just a few blocks from where I grew up, a man was getting gas. Two people were admiring his car. He went home. He drove to his house in the suburbs of Memphis. He got out of his car. He walked into his home. A few minutes later, two people show up in ski mask. He was killed. His wife was injured. And all over a 2006 Dodge Charger. And my dad started explaining this to me, and at the end, I just, my gut sank. And I thought, that is awful. That is tragic, senseless violence. No more. Pan this week told me of a, a horrible tragedy of someone in her youth group growing up who killed his father with a baseball bat in a parking lot in St. Louis, Missouri. It's awful. I hope it don't sound too insane when I say there is darkness all around us, but how could we really doubt it? There is evil in this world, and it is an evil beyond any kind of sinful act or all the sinful acts together. There is such a thing as darkness and evil. Paul calls it sin with a capital S, and he's talking about it as a power, not simply an act. He may use the word sin for an act once in Romans. The rest of the time, it is a demonic force, and he speaks of it the same way he speaks of Satan, because there is dark, evil powers, and that's what Jesus came to destroy. Destroy all the sin. Sin out there but also sin in here. See, those of us who have been walking with Jesus for long enough, we know that one of the things that upsets us most is our sin. Look in verse 2. John describes the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He is Speaking of the church, which is also elsewhere described as the bride of God, the bride of Christ. Think of Ephesians 5, where it talks about Christ who uh, sanctifies the church, his bride, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What John is describing here in verse 2 of chapter 21 is this. He's saying the work is complete. The bride will be sinless. You know, those of us who have tried to follow Jesus for any amount of time, 
we know what it means and what it's like. I don't know about you, but I know what it's like. Just get weary of my sin. Of always having to fight the temptation to sin. Of always mourning the consequences of my sin continually over and over and over again. The Anglican William Law said that I would rather be hung and thrown into a ditch than have someone else look into my heart. And I know when I look in my own heart, I'm disgusted at the things that I see. The selfishness, the pride, always seeking my own self-interest rather than the interest of others, the lack of compassion and charity, the self-aggrandizement that often is so subtle. Why did you say that? The cowardice? You know, being a coward is a sin. Because it always means you're trusting in something else, looking to something else that's more important than God's verdict. And so we cower in fear because we don't believe what God has promised. Cowards will not be there, he says. I look into my own world and I see this and I see the mixed motives that even when I do like nice things and good things, it's always mixed. There's always a sense of, do I really have to do this? Don't want to do this? What am I going to get out of it? I mean, is there an altruistic bone in my body? What about you? I look in my own heart and I think, John says, imagine a world where all that is gone. Imagine a world when you get up in the morning and you are quick to do the good. Imagine a world in which you never speak out of turn, when you never say anything that's insensitive, where you never walk away from a conversation and think, I should have spoken, or why did I say that? Think of a world in which you always assume the best of someone else, when you're always looking out for the interests of others, where life is not a game of negotiations, Think of a world like that. We would hardly recognize ourselves. And yet I feel as if I would be seeing my true self for the first time. This is what John says. Imagine that world. A world without the curse. A world without sin. That is the world that Jesus is coming again to bring. But John not only tells us to do the positive exercise of imagining lasagna with no meat, he doesn't just say imagine a world without all the things that cause pain and sorrow in this world. He also calls us to imagine a world where every joy is protected and perfected. Throughout this description, what John does is he takes the very best things in this life, the most beautiful experiences that he's ever had, the most precious things in this world, the most enchanting things, and he uses these in his description of what the future world will be like. In 
verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 23, he speaks of sunshine. And the city will have no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Have you ever been enamored by the sun? Well, John says, just, just imagine that. And you're getting close, except it won't be the sun. It will be God's glory. In verse, in, cha- in uh, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, he uses this image of rivers of pure running water and of leaves and of fruit trees. Have you ever been to the Blue Ridge Mountains in mid-October? You should go. The blazing beauty of autumn will take your breath away. John says, imagine that. It'll be like that. He, in 21.11, he uses the image of rare jewels like jasper and crystal. And in 21.21, he talks of pearls and of gold. Now, jewelry has never fascinated me until I went to go get engaged. And then you start shopping rings. And then you start getting very interested and the diamonds. And then you start realizing, wow, there's something to this. Well, think of a world where all that glitters is gold. And then you're getting there. In 2124, he says that the kings of the earth will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. That the very best things of the cultures of this earth will come through. I wonder what images you would use to describe the future world. For some of you, it's going to be the paintings of Monet. For others, it'll be the sculptures of Michelangelo. For some of you, it will be the music of Beethoven. And for others of you, it will be the music of Bono. I remember sitting with a friend who was uh, from the Netherlands and he and we were in Cambridge. He was an Old Testament scholar, uh, a bit older than me, and he loved Baroque music. Uh, he loved Baroque from like the 17th century. And he brings this CD and he puts it on and I watched his face and he was transported. It, it was as if he had gone to heaven. It wasn't my taste, but it was his. I couldn't relate quite, but you know what? I I do remember the first time I heard Joni Mitchell's Blue album. And I heard that voice. And I said, ooh, that's something special. That's something of glory. John Owen, the Puritan writer, said, No man ought to look for anything in heaven but what one way or another he hath some experience of in this life. Joy, as one pastor put it, is a message from God about the world to come. If you want to know what the future world will be like, then John is saying take the very best of what this world has to offer, everything that brings you joy, deep, real, lasting joy, and think it will be like that everywhere, all the time. friend and colleague of C.S. Lewis, Harry Blamers, he, he has this great little quote talking about the future world in his book on heaven. He says this, 
It's in fragmentary glimpses that the joys of the kingdom are flashed before our faces on our earthly pilgrimage. We all have our stores of memories that keep their power to blind us with the dazzle of the wonder and the beauty they reveal. When you first took a hand that is now cold in the grave. When you first looked into the eyes that imprinted their gaze forever on your mind. When you first caught sight of that remote village nestling in the elbow of a valley, all white and green in the sun. When you first saw your wife with your baby in her arms. When a lyric of Byron's first throbbed through your brain in school days. We all have our store of such particular memories. If we wanted an adjective to characterize what was common to them all, we should say quite naturally, it was heavenly. Blamers concludes, this most natural of expressions carries immense implications. Blamers is saying that that we all have these experiences of joy, of glory in our life, This, this list of things, and they don't come Often, they aren't always there, but we have them. We capture them, these memories, these stores of memories where we feel like we were, we were taken somewhere else. And he says, these, these are tastes, foretaste of what is to come. I have my list. We all have our list. Like, like the, the time in a, Warm Memphis July after fireworks of the 4th of July, walking into a TCBY the first time and tasting frozen yogurt. That is emblazoned on my mind. Or, Or perhaps it was those spring days just after the Memphis heat had let up its fight for football practice. I'm sorry, in, in fall. And, and you go out and the daylight savings had just ended and the practices were earlier and the wind would blow through your pads and you smelled the grass and you saw the sunset. Or maybe it was that time when my mom and I were walking through Venice and we stumbled into the most elegant little restaurant with the most passionate waiter who insisted that we order every course before he chose the wine, which he had been blind tasting for four hours that morning, which he did every morning. And the joy of walking back to the hotel room with my mom and knowing that we had a moment that was unlike any other. One of those few times. Or... The time when I was on a warm spring day running through the moorlands of Salzburg under the shadow of the Untersberg. And as I was running there, I felt like I could go mile after mile after mile after mile. Feeling the endorphins and alive. Or perhaps it was that Good Friday in 2003 in Cambridge, England, after I had gone and worshipped at a church, which became my church years later, and heard the sound of God's people singing the Psalter, and afterwards was taken out by these Cambridge PhD students to punt on the River Cam, and being attacked by a goose, 
and having my friend who was with me punting and fall into the river cam as all the students were out on the lawn because it was a warm spring day and it was sunny. And in England, you never get that. And they all stood and erupted in applause. And we didn't care because it was the most lovely day and the most interesting conversation. Or maybe it was the time when I worshipped at All Souls Langham Place and heard John Stott preach for one of his final times. And as I sat there on the first row of the balcony and I looked around and I realized that next to me was a representation of heaven. Every tongue, tribe, and nation praising God. Or maybe it was that time when I sat with a good friend on the cliffs of Moore. And we talked about history and theology and loss and life. Or I would have to say there was that night after I got engaged. And the party that commenced. And the joy of knowing what God had given me and just being thankful. Or there was that time, Swiss Labrie when we stayed in the Alps and we went to Karen Goldsworthy's house who had been working all day to make this korma. And it was the most amazing korma I had ever put in my mouth, this Indian curry dish where you'd eat and it felt like the flavors lingered for hours upon hours upon hours. Or then there was the time in graduate school when I was working on my master's thesis and I was studying Romans 2 and I got so excited about all that I was uncovering in that text. I have my list. You have your list. These glimpses of glory, these things that God gives us that are foretaste of what is to come. And of course, the greatest glimpse of glory, the greatest experience of joy that we perhaps can experience in this life is the experience of communion with God himself. And John says that that will be there too. In chapter 21, verse 3, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Unfettered union and communion with God. And we have our experiences of that in this life as well. Like in 1998 when I was in the pastor's office of my church and he opened up the scriptures for two hours and taught me And it's almost as if I didn't even hear what he was saying because I felt like I was being transported to another place. And in that moment, I was captured by grace. Taken captive. And I walked out of his office that day and I knew that the rest of my life would be set on a different trajectory. It was as if I had died and come to life again. We have those experiences. John says that this is the experience that we will have everywhere all the time. Look in 
chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. The temple, the tabernacle, these were that places, the holy of holy, where God's Shekinah glory, his glory, manifest itself on earth. And it was a glory which no man could see. It was a glory which Adam did experience in Eden. It was a glory that came in temple and tabernacle. It was a glory which came in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is the glory that is going to be there everywhere all the time. And we will enter into it. Communion with the triune God. This is what we are actually destined for. That experience, and we have glimpses of it. We have glimpses of it when we've been with the people of God in worship, when we've heard the scriptures proclaimed, when we've tasted of the sacrament, when we have experienced or seen baptism, and the rush of heaven has come over us. We've had experience of it. It will be like that everywhere, all the time. That's what John is saying. Another Puritan, John Flavel, said, All the delights in the earthly things, all, all that delights you in earthly things, can never satisfy you, for all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops and flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your souls. But the Lamb will lead you to the fountains of living water. What Flavel is saying is that all other joys in this life lead to and flow from this joy, unfettered communion with the triune God. And that's what you all want. Whether you're a Christian or here or not, that is your deepest longing. That is you want. That's what you want. That's what you're after in everything else. It's what you were made for. It's what you long for. And there's only one way to get it. You see, throughout this chapter, we keep hearing of the throne of God and of someone else dwelling there on the throne. And this figure is continually referred to as the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And when we're introduced to the Lamb in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, we are told twice that he was the Lamb who was slain. This lamb is the lamb who is God's victory lamb, who conquers sin and death. And he did it through his cross. Through his death, he destroyed death. Through his blood, he washed away all our sin. And if you believe in him, then this little thought experiment that we've been doing well, that's your future. Does that not cultivate in you a longing for his return? I pray that it does. Lord, we do ask that you would come soon, that you would come quickly, that you would bring all the things that you have promised. We long for that day. We ache for it. We yearn for it. We pray that in the meantime, every glimpse of glory that you give us, we would take it and store it up and it, it would be used by us to cultivate a deeper longing 
for the ultimate day, the day when you come again. Amen.